I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to the Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm your co-host, Matt Bernico. I'm your other co-host, Dean Ditloff. Hey, uh, we're both here this week. <laughs> I don't know. We were both here last week, too. I don't know why I thought that would be distinguishing in some way. <laughs> All right. Anyways, we're both here this week, especially for you out there. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about something that we haven't talked about before, at least not very explicitly. So on the show, we talk a lot about economics and labor and capital and all these kinds of big cool marxist ideas that we love but something we haven't talked about yet um is debt which i think is a little bit ironic given the centrality that debt has in many christian ways of thinking jesus paid it all you owe it all to him <laughs> all to um, him i owe what a wild uh, follow-up line it seems kind of bonkers, right, that Jesus paid it all, but then you do owe it to him. I don't know what that really means. <laughs> it's like Jesus is the uh, the theological um, equivalent of like Navient buying your federal student loans. Uh, what a bummer. That's right. Oh, man. When you put it that way, that's extremely <laughs> depressing. <laughs> well, uh, just like we are saying right now, Christianity has a really particular way of thinking about debts in terms of far bigger than just economics. And maybe we should consider those things. Um, there's a lot of people that have, you know, things to say about debt and like what it does and what it's for and where it comes from. But uh, I think someone that is hard to neglect in that conversation is David Graeber, who is uh, an anarchist kind of anthropologist sort of person. Uh, he passed away in 2020, um, but he did write a really cool book about debt called Debt, the First 5,000 Years. Um, it's a really interesting one. I'm, I've actually never read it and I'm just working my way through it now and, uh, I'm enjoying it. I mean, I think there are some big questions I have about it, but it's a pretty fascinating book to say the very least. Anyways, something that I really like in Graeber's book is, uh, this, this phrase that he comes up with that I think plays pretty prominently in Christianity. Uh, he calls it primordial debt. Um, other cultures have ways of thinking about this other than Christianity too, um, you know, like where you're indebted to your ancestors or society or something. We'll talk about it more later. But um, in, in terms of Christianity, he says this. Even our ancestor Adam is no longer figured as a creditor, but as a transgressor and therefore a debtor who passes on to us the burden of original sin. What a jerk. Um, <laughs> anyways, just like a, a wild way for a whole religion to start, I guess, with this one guy becoming in debt um, and, you know, here we are, a Christian podcast that talks about politics. We've never talked about debt before. That's that's not right. So 
it's hard to miss this trope, you know, other places within Christianity, you know, at church or whatever, um, in, you know, the liturgy or during worship or whatever, uh, before you receive Eucharist, um, you'll probably even acknowledge the debt that you already have that, um, that you need to kind of make amends for, you know, um, it's in the, in, in the Episcopal church, it's called the confession of sin. I'm sure it's called the same thing in other churches too. Who knows? In the Catholic church, we, uh, we beat our breast while we, uh, do that part. It's pretty rough. Oh man, we're supposed to kneel, but not, not even a lot of kneeling these days. <laughs> yeah, how, how indebted are we really? <laughs> Ours is uh, thanks to uh, Pope Benedict. So there you go. Thank you, Pope Benedict. Beyond Christianity, though, debt also has a pretty big role to play in the entire fabric of capitalism. <laughs> it has a pretty intrinsic role um, in, I mean, in consumption for sure. Um, consumer debt and whatnot are student loans. That's probably the places we think of debt uh, first. But it also has a really intrinsic um, role in the way. Capitalist organisms and institutions like the IMF or the World Bank try to regulate so-called developing countries. Uh, debt has a, a lot to do with imperialism. So in this episode, we're going to dig into all of this um, and uh, we're going to do what we're good. We're, we're going to do what we're good at. Uh, we're going to take a look at something that uh, should be simple, like debt, and then we're going to make it really complicated. And uh, in the end, we'll give a, a good Marxist Christian take on, on debt and maybe what, what we should do about it or think about it in the end. Does that all sound good, Dean? It sounds good to me. It sounds good when you put it that way. We'll see if it <laughs> sounds good later on. Um, I think it's good to also pause here and just frame debt as a big problem within Christianity a little more related to other things that we've said on the podcast in the past, because I think debt reveals something really interesting, like a kind of... Uh, uh, compromise within Christianity or a big contradiction. And we're always, I don't know, <laughs> we always get into that, I guess, on this podcast for better or worse. Um, so I'm thinking about things like how Christianity historically has thought about labor or how it has thought about private property or even communism and, and the primitive communism of early Christians, right? So uh, I think a pattern that we see all the time in Christianity is that on the one hand, Christianity sort of opens up a new space that's often very radical, right? So like in Acts, uh, the early Christians respond to Jesus by uh, selling everything that they have and holding it all in common. Um, but then uh, later on, historically, Christians will go on to be the people who basically invent a massive debt and credit system of capitalism uh, that we are all living under right now. Uh, so it's kind of that same old story, right? That like, uh, you might open the way for something like communism initially, but then by the time you get to uh, the working class or industrialism, you kind of forget how labor works or you forget how private property works uh, or, or you conveniently understand it and exploit it. I don't know. However you want to put it, I guess is fine. But there's this sort of pattern in Christianity where there's a, a door that gets opened and then it gets closed even harder <laughs> historically by Christians on the whole. So uh, maybe that's one other thing to just keep in mind as we go here. Uh, Matt, you said it's hard to ignore David Graeber. I have to admit that I have never read this book, so I guess it was not that hard for me to ignore <laughs> it. So I'm going to rely on you <laughs> to do that for me. But uh, I think it's really interesting to trace that sort of narrative within Christianity to say there is this kind of liberating moment, I think, with respect to debt. And maybe we'll get into that later on, too. Um, but then there's also like we we are living in a world where historically Christian countries are the primary creditors uh, lording over uh, 
heavily indebted countries that will never be able to pay their debts back ever. <laughs> it is literally impossible. Um, so anyway, just uh, one more big tension that we can keep tracing. Yeah, I think the, the tensions are good to kind of hold up because, man, Christianity has so royally failed <laughs> in so many different ways. <laughs> and uh, I think it's or succeeded, depending on <laughs> that's who you true. Ask. That's exactly true. Well, um, it has done one of those two things. But um, for all of us, I think, you know, the the you's and me's of the world who are kind of trying to figure this all out, it's kind of good to keep track of these, um, I don't know, the, the failures and then just like all of these other sort of like, uh, I don't know, the other back channels and other things that exist um, and maybe find something, you know, still useful or, or retrace our steps or find a new place to start. Always good to, I don't know, reassess the history and maybe find something interesting in it. Okay, so a minute ago, I did mention David Graeber, who is a person who um, recently died last year, and that sucks. It's not good when people die. I don't like it, um, but um, he did write a great book, and that's cool, and maybe a good way to kind of consider that memory, and uh, I don't know. Sorry, I feel like I'm digging myself in a hole um, <laughs> and with, with uh, sentimentalism here. Yeah, ho- hopefully he didn't do anything bad. <laughs> who, knows, who knows, man? That would be bad. <laughs> Anyways, in 2020, he wrote a pretty influential book um, called Debt, The First 5,000 Years, and it's a big one. It's a big book. It's red. It has a cool cover. And that's what I like most about books is they're great covers. <laughs> What's inside them, I'm sure is great, too. No, um, in this case, it's pretty interesting. Um, I don't have like a really um, I'm, I'm like still kind of working through the book. Um, I'm taking it apart a bit. Um, I don't have like a super developed um, criticism or take on the book or anything like that. So I'm sure there are a lot out there because it's a pretty influential one, if I recall correctly. But um the the main thrust of the book is this. A lot of historians really care about money. <laughs> That's the thing that people seem to have some kind of vested <laughs> interest in. Um, but David Graeber kind of explains that you can't tell the story of money without talking about credit and without talking about debt. And in fact, um, in his sort of historical work, he uh, traces credit and debt as kind of like the building blocks of a lot of communities. Um, and you can't rush right to like coins and capital necessarily. You got to talk about debt and credit. Um, so, I mean, this is a really abbreviated way to kind of put it because there's a lot of interesting historical stuff going on. But basically the idea is this, that like debt is a part of building like the earliest communities. Um, you know, you, you have a farm, you need someone to give you something your neighbor right so you go and ask your neighbor and they give it to you and that's great um but when uh when things kind of come around and you have to repay your neighbor you you don't quite uh you don't quite make it you don't have enough to pay them back and the only the only solution you have is to sell your children into debt peonage it's not great um and anyways this is sort of like the thing that uh, you see kind of play out in in some of these earliest societies um and you know this is how trust is established as is, is you know when you can pay back your uh your debts and you know your credit is actually worth something um in these early societies uh, graber is kind of talking through it and he's like well it's it's interesting because like you know who you're indebted to um whereas you know now if you have a i don't know if you have student loans you probably do or if you I don't know, have a mortgage or whatever. You have no idea who owns your debt. And in fact, your, your debtor, your, uh, your, who you owe your debt to will keep changing. Uh, it's Navient. It's uh, Great Lakes. It's somebody else. It's always somebody else, right? And you have no idea who they are. <laughs> um, anyways, but that's kind of the interesting thing uh, David Graeber thinks is that uh, on the one hand, in these early communities, debt played this role of sort of community building, um, not necessarily in a positive way. I'm not, 
I don't want to put like that kind of like moral spin on it, but it did, you know, like it built that sort of trust mm -hmm. between people. Uh, but now uh, it's really problematic because debt is uh, increasingly mathematic, right? Like your debtors know uh, to a percentage point exactly how much you owe and when you pay it off and all this kind of stuff. Um, but you, you know, you owe it to no one in particular, just sort of a faceless corporation who has bought it from another faceless corporation. So that's kind of going on there. And it's, it's wild. That's the, the main thrust of the book, though. Um, but something that Graeber ends up defining in his book that I think is really interesting is this phrase I mentioned earlier, primordial debt. And uh, this is fascinating because it's kind of bigger than the economic system. It's more about this like large trope we can kind of pick apart in different cultures. And man, it bugs me now that I've read about it. <laughs> I don't like it. Um, so the basic <laughs> idea with primordial debt is that there is like this deep notion that's somewhere within our culture for whatever reason. I mean, in, a, in many different human cultures that puts those of us in the present in debt to our past, uh, in debt to our ancestors, in debt to the nation, in debt to our society. And it's interesting for a lot of reasons. Um, but uh, in the book, the, the kind of thing that's important about this is that it implicates nationalism and it implicates the state as the custodians of your debt. Uh, so, you know, debt repayment is um, no longer a matter of trust, but it's a matter of like biopolitics, I guess, for um, maybe that's not the, quite the right word, but that's the one that makes sense to me, right? You have to you have to pay somebody back a whole lot of money or something bad will happen to you. Um, I mean, there's like, uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, you know, for you personally as an individual, there's not necessarily like state violence at the other end of uh, not paying your debt. But uh, for uh, you as a country that now has taken money from the World Bank or whoever, there is for sure state violence at the other end of that one. Um, something that's interesting about primordial debt, though, is that Christianity ends up dealing with primordial debt kind of at its core, and it does it in an extremely weird way. And if you are a Christian, this all is Sunday school stuff for you. But if you're not a Christian or you're desperately trying to escape it, it's actually pretty bonkers. Uh, it's just like a really weird way of thinking, <laughs> but it is kind of what the whole entire religion hinges on. Um, I promise I'll stop talking in about two seconds, Dean. But let me keep let me keep going here. Let me keep plugging away. Please, I'm I'm not even bored. I'm so excited to hear that. <laughs> um, the basic idea is that um, with primordial debt, you can't really pay it back. You can't pay back what what you owe to your ancestors. You can't pay back what you owe to society for some like pretty easy reasons. Because like you're a finite person with finite abilities, right? Like you're just we're just dudes with a podcast. What are we gonna do? <laughs> Right. I mean, there are certain ways that you do repay your debt, like, you know, um, you, you pay your taxes or you um, you have kids or something like that. Right. You're a productive member of society. You're paying your debt to society back. But like you can't really ever pay it back in any meaningful way. <laughs> you know, if you were to calculate out exactly like, I don't know, like how much money your parents spent on you growing up or something <laughs> like you couldn't pay that back. It's like it's incalculable. Um but anyways, Christianity as a religion, it deals with um, primordial debt by wiping it all away in sort of a funny way through sin and redemption. And it Christianity does that. And like you said, Dean, there's a ten, there's a tension within Christianity. And the one hand it does it. On the other hand, we will not take the win <laughs> for whatever reasons. Christians don't want to believe it. <laughs> OK, but uh, Graeber has this kind of interesting point um, about Christianity and debt. And he kind of gets there through riffing off of Nietzsche. And I desperately don't want to get into the weeds with philosophy. So I'm just going to kind of skim over it as much as I can and just kind of quote David Graeber at face value here. So he says this, 
We develop a creeping feeling that we could never really pay back the ancestors, that no sacrifice, not even the sacrifice of our firstborn, will ever truly redeem us. We are terrified of the ancestors, and the stronger and more powerful a community becomes, the more powerful they seem to be, until finally the ancestors necessarily transfigured into a god. So there's obviously some pretty clear Nietzsche vibes there. Um, anyways, so he goes on to elaborate, though, the, the Christian role in all of this. And he says that Christianity deals with explaining um, explaining away debt in one of Jesus' parables, which is really funny, um, kind of when he gets into it. So in Matthew, there's a parable that all you real Bible quizzers out there will know off the top of your head. Um, it's the parable of the unmerciful servant. Um, so we've talked about this on the podcast before. I'm positive because it has to do with money. Um, but in the parable, there is a king. Um and I mean, come on, it's a parable, so you know who it's talking about here. There's a king who forgives one of his servants just a bunch of money. Um, and it's more money than the servant could have ever actually paid back. Um, but the servant goes out after uh, being forgiven all this money, and he, like, chokes out somebody who won't uh, who won't pay him the money that he's owed. So um, the servant's forgiven of his debts, but the servant won't forgive somebody else of, of their debts. And then, like, the king ends up getting you know, pissed off because he forgives the servant, but the servant wouldn't forgive somebody else. And David Graeber is like, this is kind of the thing that's going on in Christianity because um, it sets up this kind of like goofy system where the king, God, forgives all of us our transgressions, our sins, or what our debts or whatever. But the, the key is that we also have to forgive forgive other people. And we're really bad at that part of it. <laughs> um, the, the thing that he kind of uh, points <laughs> out about this parable, though, is that like kings don't actually have to forgive servants of their debt. Like that doesn't even make sense as like a concept um, given, you know, like the context of an ancient society, right? That there's a, there's a king, they have control of capital and it wouldn't even make sense to like ask somebody else to settle their debt because like, how would you do that? Right. How would you even settle that kind of debt? It's, it's sort of impossible. But the thing is that like um, that, that's like the mechanism within Christianity that ends up being really interesting to me is that uh, um it's it's impossible to deal with the primordial debt in sort of a finite mathematical like money kind of way but christianity has this mechanism within it that does actually forgive people of their debts um whatever they might be you know who knows um your transgressions if that's a more comfortable language but um i think i think there's something monetary that's involved too that might be kind of interesting um but anyways christians have a, a just ju even though that is like um, the main mechanism of christianity you know the the notion of like redemption and like sort of like the freedom from sin um christians have like you know the the worst the worst track record of like actually just taking it you know <laughs> of like uh in in that parable mm -hmm. we all end up becoming the uh the unrepentant servant who uh you know we get forgiven or whatever but we're gonna go be huge assholes to somebody else that's for sure okay so i've laid all this out here just just to say that like um, what I think is really valuable about David Graeber and his in his work on debt. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of valuable. But I think what's interesting to me as a Christian person, someone who's like, you know, very firmly on the left and interested in socialism, is that uh, Christianity does have this way of thinking about debt that is like pretty compelling um, and extremely anti-capitalist, right? Uh, Christianity is not telling people like, yeah, sorry, you got to pay your debts. It's like saying, nope, you're forgiven and go forgive other people too. Um, and yeah, I don't know, a compelling moment within Christianity. Um, wild. It is wild. And, uh, it's fascinating too, because like you said, Matt, it's not when you think of Christianity today, or when you think of yourself as a Christian, 
Uh, probably most people don't think of themselves as uh, or that faith tradition as being free from debt necessarily. I mean, there's maybe like if you're an evangelical, uh, you know that that's a part of it or something, right? Like, you know that the the whole piece is kind of um, you've built up some kind of debt you could never pay. Jesus paid it all and all to him you owe and so on and so forth, right? All the contradiction is kind of right there. Um, but the overwhelming feeling that I think a lot of people who pass through that particular tradition feel, but many others too, is actually an overwhelming feeling yeah. of, of indebtedness all the time, right? That like you owe something to God that you're never going to be able to pay, even though the whole point is that Jesus has done it once a long time ago and uh, you're the beneficiary of that event. And I think it's so fascinating the way that Christianity has, again, <laughs> just confused itself, I guess, uh, historically. <laughs> um, there are a lot of theologians and political theologians and political people writing about all this stuff. Um, I don't know, like Devin Singh had a really interesting book on currency and uh, dealing with debt and theology. Um, there's a guy named Phil Goodchild who's done a bunch of stuff about it. Lots of other people as well. Um, my friend Sean Kapner, who wrote a really great piece in the bias, not about this exactly, but Christianity in general and its extremely confused state. <laughs> Lots of people that are, I think, trying to sort this out. Um, but what is so fascinating is that that deep kind of internal confusion, whether you think that confusion is like totally natural, like it just kind of grows out of some logics within Christianity or whether you think it's a perversion of Christianity, I guess is up to you to decide. But um, Christianity does tie itself into knots, right? Like you have, like you're saying, Matt, uh, following Graeber, you have these kind of wild, fantastical parables of uh kings arbitrarily forgiving debts that they don't have to forgive and then and that sort of uh, tradition extends even into prohibitions on things like usury in christian history right like uh dante puts usurers i think in like the seventh circle of hell or something right like there's there's all kinds of uh strong angry reactions to that but uh, eventually, like I said, it's it's Christians really who end up uh, driving the capitalist ship of uh, that that depends on on debt and speculation and uh, accounting for those kinds of uh, credit and debt relationships to the point where today you have all these Christian countries, historically Christian countries that are uh, choking the rest of the world out with um, debts. So it's just a. A fascinating, wild story of whatever you want to say, mutation, decline, <laughs> natural growth or something. But uh, I'll um, I don't know. Once we start getting into more of like the current landscape of debt capitalism, I guess we can draw more of those links. But it is fascinating that Christianity just can't seem to uh, figure it out, can't live into its best, most liberating moments. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, you know, Christianity, like you said, <laughs> has a lot of is I don't know, just saying it's confused is probably a good way to put it. Um, there's a lot going on there within Christianity, a lot of confusing stuff. Um, but there's like, you know, also like like we said, I don't know, in previous weeks, like we're saying now, there's also like uh, there's something there, though, too, that is maybe the germ of something more radical. Um, it makes me think, too, of um, this past week, um, Ed Simon, who is a really uh, cool illustrator um, who's done stuff for the nib. Uh, he did this really interesting um, interview with Ben Wildflower. And um, it's a it's a great interview. First of all, um, Ben is like the most compelling. Uh, <laughs> he's the most compelling representative of Christianity that I've seen, I think, probably in a long time. 
<laughs> um, he's got a lot of good stuff to say. Anyways, uh, Ben Wildflower said that the message of Christianity is that all debts are paid, all the captives are set free, there's no scoreboard in the sky measuring your rights or wrongs. And uh, man, I think that's a good definition of like whatever that radical germ is within Christianity and debt. Um, that there's something like really hopeful there that is, um, you know, beyond just like a nice idea or something that you'd sing in like a old timey hymn, but something like really radical that um, would definitely upset capitalism or you to believe in it, I think, really. Um, so let's let's get into it beyond just mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. the weird thought patterns and idiosyncrasies of Christianity. Um, and talk about debt and imperialism. Dean, I feel like whenever I think of debt and imperialism, you're the person that I know knows something about that. So tell me all about it. (laughs) Yeah, I've read exactly one whole book and a variety of articles about it. So um, I can give you that. Uh, Matt, you've been reading David Graeber. I mentioned this book on the show in a different context. I forget when, maybe when we talked about imperialism last, but um, there's a really fun book. If you ever just want to get like a very basic overview of how debt and capitalism kind of go together now, or at least like in the wake of the 20th century, there's this book from the monthly review press called debt, the IMF and the world bank, 60 questions, 60 answers. And uh, it delivers. <laughs> I'm always thinking about that. I'm always thinking about how I want a better handle on debt and capitalism. And this is it the is. book. I like that they it's 60 answers and 60 questions. That's like a yeah, track. it's amazing. It's a great it's like a, a catechism of debt, I guess. Um, it really works. And uh, it will answer all the questions that you have and also the ones that you, you didn't know you should ask. Um, what I really like about it, though, is it does kind of try to introduce all the really weird reasons that we live in a world that is so um I don't know, like like debt is kind of the net uh, that covers the whole planet now. And it wasn't actually always that way. I mean, debt has always been a part of capitalism. It's actually really important that debt is part of capitalism. Uh, You were kind of mentioning earlier, Matt, this kind of almost philosophical way of looking at debt, right, where it's like it's based in trust. It's this kind of uh, relational thing. It's like I trust that this person is going to pay me back. And if you don't, there are consequences. In capitalism, that is still true, Uh, but it also takes on this kind of um, more uh, accumulative sort of logic or or leans into that logic in debt. So what I mean by that is when you when a creditor promises credit to a debtor and the debtor promises to pay it back, uh, the creditor in capitalism is also looking to increase their capital over time. Right. So there's like uh this sort of it's not about like building relationships in your community um good or bad it's about building your wealth reserves there will you know there's not going to be a jubilee that resets everything for instance uh you're just trying to get as much as you can and so you get as many people indebted as you can um and there's all kinds of ways that that relationship can get complicated and then i don't know the mafia threatens to break your legs or whatever you know um anyway uh debt is this really weird sort of speculative exercise where like the creditor is betting that the debtor will pay you back uh, or will pay them back and the debtor is uh, also betting that they'll be able to pay them back once they sort of grow the wealth that they're about to get but the wild thing is like if that relationship fails even though both people have made a bet it's only ever the debtor who is held accountable for that bet like the creditor will be pissed at the debtor and will do all kinds of things to make sure that that debtor is in trouble or pays back. 
Whereas uh, the debtor, the debtor can't really be like, well, you made a bad bet on me, creditor. Like, sorry, <laughs> that's your fault. You messed up. <laughs> um, so it's not really a relationship of trust, right? Under capitalism, it's actually a relationship of coercion. And so if you think of it in that kind of philosophical register, by the time you scale this up to like a planetary scale or um, the relationships between whole countries, you end up with some extremely perverse things that happen. Um I don't know, maybe I'll just really briefly introduce like how the debt stuff got going in the 20th century in a big way, and then we can take a break and parse it out. Uh, yeah. So, you know, debt, like I said, has always been part of capitalism, but it really kicks into overdrive and becomes a crisis in the 1970s. Uh, there's lots of reasons. There's like a lot of weird stuff going on in global monetary policies. And, you know, Richard Nixon got the U.S. off the gold standard, and that created all kinds of problems and all this kind of stuff. Uh, one, that contributes in lots of ways to the, to the debt crisis that is, I don't know, if you're like an economics nerd, I guess you can go learn about it some more. Uh, but the, there's also this wild moment in the 70s where like the price of oil uh, shoots up a ton and creates these major shortages, but also creates a lot of profit uh, for oil um, holders and that profit got invested into banks and so the banks were like flush with cash while the rest of the world was going through these oil shortages so the banks uh, took advantage of that by creating things uh, institutions like the International Monetary Fund or the World Bank the institutions were kind of around before that but uh, they really kind of come into their own as a result of this windfall of money uh, and banks in the the world, the, the World Bank and the IMF, they lend all this money to poorer countries with the hope that they'll be developing those countries and they'll make a ton more money back. Right. So like I said earlier, the idea is you lend money as a creditor uh, because you want to grow your own profits. So the bet that is made is if the IMF or World Bank gives a ton of money to, I don't know, Haiti or Venezuela or a bunch of countries in Africa or something, um, those countries will use that money to become profitable countries and then they'll send money back and, you know, what a wonderful system and so on. Uh, surprise, it did not work that way, <laughs> to put it briefly. Instead, all that money uh, usually got eaten up um, by really corrupt regimes or literally paid the bills of, like, right-wing fascist death squads. Uh, I mean, the, the money that was being invested was literally being invested in, like, murderous uh, right-wing dictatorships. And so unsurprisingly, uh, the banks didn't I mean, they did get profits back in some weird roundabout ways. But the countries that they invested in uh, did not become, you know, profitable populations that were all flourishing and sort of sending money back. Um, instead, these poor countries became indebted and then they became sort of addicted to the uh, the debts like they kept taking on more and more loan burdens in order to pay off debts. And then any profit they did make had to go back to their creditors. So they end up in this kind of uh, like global debt peonage, basically. So in the 70s, it was a huge crisis. Uh, they got all this money, but then also these countries all were like, we cannot pay this. Like, what do you expect us to do? And uh, ever since then, the IMF and the World Bank is constantly trying to convince everybody else in the world that actually it's still good that they're giving all this money uh, to poor countries, and it's still good that those countries don't uh, don't have their debts wiped clean. 
and uh, everybody else in the world who has a conscience is like, that's totally absurd. How many decades do you have to go to realize that that's a bizarre system that needs to be changed? So I'll I'll take a break there because that's like a lot of information all at once. But uh, that's the situation we're in. <laughs> the 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 story of debt has scaled up so heavily that now the there are entire countries that are completely under the thumb of uh, other countries mediated through these huge, wild financial institutions. Yeah, I mean, it's a really good account, I think. I mean, it's helpful to put it into perspective, right? Um I think that when people in the United States think of debt, I mean, okay, listen, the uh, the like the um, the anniversary of Occupy Wall Street just happened a few days ago. Yeah, and uh, I mean, cool. It's a <laughs> it was a cool thing that happened. Um, but um, you know, one of the one of the big conversations that kind of came out of of Occupy Wall Street was about student debt, and I think that's the register we usually think about debt in. Um, and uh, take a look at the rest of the world around you. Um, you actually have a lot of reasons to be in solidarity with, um, you know, so-called developing countries um, who are also in debt. Um, it's uh, it's just a it's good to kind of get the bigger perspective and, and see that it's not just about uh, it's not about consumer debt in the United States. It's about uh, a, a lot more than that. There's a, a whole another mm-hmm. mechanism kind of at play here that we should uh, pay attention. Yeah, I mean, it's good to draw out that reason for solidarity, too. I think it's absolutely true that people in the global south broadly speaking are a thousand times worse off sure. even under their debt burden obviously yeah. but like the mechanism is the same like if you like me have student debt <laughs> and it really bothers you and uh keeps you up at night sometimes and you feel like I'm never going to pay this off without sacrificing my already extremely meager way of living uh you have at least like some kind of window in a miniature form into a massive global kind of thing that's happening and uh there is lots of reasons to create solidarity around debt and uh, being indebted people and i think the biggest thing is that at the top uh there's also a ruling class that wants people in debt it wants you in debt it wants uh whole countries in debt and so on and uh it makes a big deal that in the same way that like you can recognize that you're a worker being exploited in the same way that, you know, workers around the world are exploited just by the mechanisms of capitalism. Uh, you as an indebted person are indebted, uh, just like lots of other people in the world are indebted through increasingly complex uh, relationships. And it's good. It's good to say debt's bad and we shouldn't be doing <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah. I'm willing to stake my entire podcasting career on this, uh, this fact. Um, <laughs> You know, something else, too, I think that um, this is a, a com- completely um, off the beaten path. But, uh, man, I, I got into reading Society of the Spectacle again this week. It's a book from Guy Debord. <laughs> um, he was like a French, uh, I don't know, French guy. <laughs> Doesn't matter. <laughs> Anyways, he has this whole thing. I mean, the spectacle uh, is this like society mediated by images and uh, and um it's uh it's the the main the main thrust of the book is that um you know we all think that capitalism is this like uh because it appears before us is this like sort of like neutral just like way things are it's just like there in the world and it exists and like it's not good or bad just is it's just there and we have to kind of deal with it and and that's it right um and i guess like it never really occurred to me how much debt is kind of the same way it's kind of part of part of that spectacle i mean in a lot of ways it's part of the spectacle but uh you know i think that oftentimes or at least the way i thought about debt in the past is just that you know you need money you take out debt it's not good or it's not bad you just have to do it but like um 
but in the explanation that you gave Dean, it's really important because like it it does matter to somebody, right? <laughs> like somebody else is gonna make a lot of money off of your debt, or else they wouldn't give you the option. <laughs> um because mm-hmm. like why would somebody do that? Um but anyways, I guess it's the important part of the story that um, debt is not neutral. It's not like something that's just like a tool for there, there for you to use to go to school or something. It it does. It's literally a lucrative business that that someone's going to make um, off of your misery. So something to consider. Yeah, it's an interesting sort of thing. I mean, economically, debt is very weird because, you know, debt is like intrinsic to capitalism and capitalism does specific things with it. But debt is also um more than capitalism or like exists in other kinds of ways and and so on. Uh, So, you know, I don't know. There's other ways of like parsing it out, but uh, under capitalism, it is an extremely messed up perverse kind of thing. And uh, it like, if you're a capitalist, um, you might take out some debt in order to grow and you might make a ton of money because you did it and you pay off your loans and it's no big deal. Right. Entrepreneurs do that all the time. Um, it's one way that the system perpetuates itself. Uh, at the same time, though, like yeah. if you're not a rich person getting rich by that, by those means, uh, usually debt means that you are just going to be threatened by a bank if you do a bad <laughs> job. Right. Like uh, the the 2008 financial crisis is the story of that. Right. A bunch of people who um, didn't pay their mortgages, uh, a big housing debt and had their houses foreclosed. And then uh, all the banks started whining because they had made bad bets. Uh, that made put them in trouble. And at the end of the day, they were like, please, government, help me out. And uh, the government did. Um, so, again, it's just a wild thing that, like, the creditor will never be in trouble for making a bad bet. Uh, the debtor will always lose their house. And that is uh, the story of debt and capitalism. It's a bad story. I don't like it. Um, unlike entrepreneurs out there, um, you know, I went and got a degree in philosophy and it sure didn't pay off like if i had opened a business (laughs) or something which is a bummer but that's yeah bad investment i'm I'm a bad investment (laughs) and they should have known that i don't know what they were thinking why they give me all this money (laughs) (laughs) you should have known when i was 18 years old and said i wanted to study philosophy that you shouldn't give me uh several thousands of the more you say it the more damage Um, becomes for the banks they really screwed up they're dumb. They're not smart. Uh, and extremely and now I'm out here with a podcast just advocating against them. So it's like, really, they're losing out in a lot of different <laughs> ways here. <laughs> That's right. Um, yeah, maybe uh, just to kind of keep filling in this picture of debt and imperialism, too. I really think more people should learn about the global debt crisis because it is getting worse. Um, just to give you an example, there was a... I don't know. I I've become the kind of person who now reads a lot of articles about the World Bank and like <laughs> financial institutions and what they say. I don't know. It's a weird place to be. Uh, but here I am. And just a few days ago, there was an article in uh, Reuters on um, the global debt. And uh, according to this big um, financial firm, basically, uh, global debt is projected to end up uh, surpassing three hundred trillion dollars <laughs> pretty soon, which is like absurd like that is a made-up number i mean you you cannot conceive of 300 trillion dollars like a trillion dollars is already completely bizarre and then there's 299 more of those so uh all that to say the global debt crisis like we there's more debt floating around than there has ever been in world history because it is fictional and it can just keep getting bigger and bigger based on people's weird gambling 
Um, and uh, I think it's important to figure out how that works because, you know, we live in a society that is mediated by these kinds of relationships. And when we think about things like, I don't know, why is a country like Venezuela under siege by, you know, the world, <laughs> but especially the U.S.? I think there's lots of ways that we can talk about it in terms of the United States likes to call the shots and Hugo Chavez said no and so on. But one big piece of that is uh, Chavez and now Maduro also refused to pay back uh, their IMF loans and stuff like that. Um, and that is a big problem because the way that uh, loans are organized in terms of that kind of global financial relationship, uh, the United States has controlling interests in all those big financial institutions, the IMF, the World Bank, and so on. And so when uh, people stop playing by those rules or kind of don't hold up their end of the bargain, it means two things. On the one hand, it means the United States is potentially losing investment money that it has made. But second, it means that people are also refusing a global economic order that is completely and like... <laughs> obviously controlled by the United States. And I think that makes a huge difference. Like, uh, it's not just that the U.S. likes to have control or it has this sense of supremacy. It also has this, like, um, financial order that always ensures that money drains back to it. And uh, the more people that de-link from that, um, the slower the drain goes, I guess. <laughs> and the the concern is that one day it'll dry up. It'll dry it all up. That's the cool thing about Christianity is that God just says, sorry, it's it doesn't it's all forgiven. You don't have to worry about it anymore. Someone should someone should tell the United States. Yeah. I need a religious exemption for the IMF. <laughs> That's right. Uh, let's talk about that debt forgiveness. Um, OK, here's a wild thing that I bookmarked in this book uh, from the monthly review. Um, OK, question number 50 in this book is a great one. It's would canceling the debt of developing countries cause a global financial crisis. Um, this book is dated, so I don't know, probably they would have to write it differently now, but, uh, I'll read to you what it said. Hang on. When, what year was this published? Let me look right this second. This is live podcasting guys. All right. Uh, 2010, this is published. So like I said, it's old, but, um, pretty relevant. All right. In 2010, these authors say, uh, it's an established fact that the total public external debt of developing countries. So like the money that they owe outside of their own country is less than 2% of the world's global lending. Canceling it would in no way endanger global finance. Like, 2% of the world's global lending, it's like, you can lose that if the stock market has a bad sneeze. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, like, it's a lot of money if you're a poor country. It's so much money that you literally are paralyzed and can't do anything. It is no money to a rich country. It doesn't matter. So the big question is, like, why hold on to it if it is literally causing people to suffer? And that is such an important question to ask. Like, you can read all kinds of reports on the website of the IMF and World Bank where they try to defend themselves and explain why debt's important. And it is always unabashedly, nakedly an argument about paternalism. It's like, these poor countries don't know how to do capitalism right. And if they're indebted to us, that means that they have to listen to us when we tell them what to do. So what those institutions usually tell poor countries uh, to do is like privatize their health care, for example, uh, eliminate their public transit, make sure that uh, rich foreign investors can come in and build stuff in their countries. 
And uh, that those are literally the conditions often placed on loans and debt repayments. So like the globe could just forgive the debt of like Haiti, for instance, which just went through an earthquake and then the assassination of a president <laughs> and so on and so forth. Uh, one of the poorest countries in the entire world. But they don't because they claim that, you know, Haiti just needs sort of like an older wiser sibling to like teach them how to be good capitalists, which they have failed to do for many, many years. Right. So uh, it's important to, to keep that in mind that uh, the world could just forgive those debts and it would be fine. Like you would not notice it, uh, but they don't. That's bad. They should. Someone should do that. That should be something that somebody does. Uh, in fact, <laughs> in the year 2000, <laughs> <laughs> there was a huge movement called the Great Jubilee around the world, called that in Christian circles. It was called something different, obviously, in other places. But uh, even Pope John Paul II called the year 2000 uh, a jubilee year. And inspired by that, uh, lots of um, Christians and other people around the world tried to lobby their governments to forgive uh, the debts of poor countries. And a lot of debt did get like the burden was eased and that's good. But like the debt was not wiped away in those countries. Um, and you can literally go on the IMS website. I did this uh, earlier this week. And from the year 2001, they have an extremely hilarious document explaining why they shouldn't cancel everybody's debts. And uh, the arguments are so flimsy and like so bald. It's almost hard to believe and hard to read. But what I think is so amazing about that movement is in the year 2000, there were tons of Christians who like they they got in the streets over this, but they were also educating parishioners and people in the pews about how global debt works. Like that's how I myself got interested in global debt. Like I came across um, just some old campaign materials that had happened in Canada from the uh, Great Jubilee movement and i was like what the heck is going on here and uh, i read a bunch of that stuff and was like i gotta figure this out as well for myself so there is precedent for christians in the world becoming politically involved and demanding that debt should be canceled um why that movement totally dissipated uh there's lots of reasons i guess but uh there's no reason that it can't come back and uh we should have another big great jubilee where we say where we force the imf to at least embarrass itself in public if not uh Forgive those. Debts. Yeah, I'm here for it, man. I would love to embarrass the IMF. I think that sounds like a cool, a cool hobby to get into. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's interesting. So, I mean, uh, OK, here we are kind of at, at, at the end of the conversation. But what we have here is like, um, you know, it not it's Christianity's confusion over why, uh, you know, why it shouldn't just kind of like forgive debts and transgressions. And also, like, what happens when you really don't, right? And I think when it comes down to it, there is a compelling vision of the world where um, countries that, uh, you know, are poorer than the United States need relief so that they can, like, figure out how to govern and, like, figure out what's going on. And, like, probably should let them, huh? <laughs> like, it seems it seems really <laughs> straightforward. I don't know. Get rid of the imaginary numbers. Let's just do this. Um uh, and Christianity has some kind of compelling idea for it. And it seems like uh, just got to do it again and and uh, and hold the IMF's feet to the fire and like and do it. I know that's like that's saying a ton, right? That's like that's a huge campaign that you'd have to run and like really kind of do a lot of education around. But like, man, um, Christians have so much uh, 
so so many resources at their own at their own disposal um like mobilize in a big ecumenical way for something like really worth it mm-hmm. yeah i think too these kinds of questions i don't know here's the good theology bit i guess for the people who come for that <laughs> Uh, I think, you know, the politics are are obvious, in my opinion, right? Death's bad, get rid of it, and, and so on for, for these poor countries. Um, and, and for me, too. Get rid of my debt, too, Joe Biden. Um, but uh, it's important that Christians look harder at our own traditions and try to figure out why it is that Christianity specifically has basically made the world in this image. Because um, we did do it. It's something that we did. <laughs> Uh, and you know, how did that happen? I think there's lots of different, I don't know, like I said earlier, histories, lots of theologians trying to sort it out. But I think even at the most sort of basic levels, like it is baked into Mm -hmm. the way that we think of ourselves as Christians. Um, and there are alternatives that have been put forward for different ways of thinking of ourselves. So for example, like the atonement, that's the big obvious one, I think, right? Like, There are lots of analogies for whatever is going on in what we call the atonement, but a lot of them are debt based that you you um, you get a debt, you inherit a debt from Adam, and then you sort of keep on adding to that debt with interest over time. And if you don't pay it off, you'll (laughs) go to hell. Right. (laughs) That's that is how evangelicalism was explained to me. And I I bought it. I was into it. Um, but there are lots of, uh, liberation theologians, for instance, for whom, uh, that is not part of, uh, their conception of what's going on with Jesus and liberation at all. Right. In fact, uh, Jesus really liberates us genuinely from our debts such that we can forget about them and recognize which ones are also totally illusory, right? Like, uh, the debts that capitalism has put us in. Jesus is like, you don't need those. Um, and in fact, here's a way out. So I think we have to like, think very hard and very carefully about what it is within Christianity that has sort of set us on this path. And maybe Christians can try to find a way to, yeah, I don't know, <laughs> think our way out of it. Uh, but boy, would it be a tough undertaking? Yeah, that's a good theological point, Dean. But I'm here to say, just take the win. We've, we did it. Jesus, it's, it's over guys. Just it's, it's fine now. <laughs> All right. I've yep. made the big appeal. I feel like everyone's on my side. <laughs> right to Navian and say that. Say uh, Jesus has uh, paid it all, and actually it's only to him that I owe, so you're going to have to uh, write him a letter. Try to write him a letter, see if he will sell you my debt. I don't think so, though. Probably not. Kind of his whole thing to not do that. <laughs> um, next time Joe Biden says he's not going to forgive student debt, do tell him about the parable of the unrepentant servant and just be like, what are you doing, man? What are you doing, my good Catholic yeah. president? you got to pay attention to this one. Tell him about how you're a conscientious objector to uh, capitalism. I debt. think it just makes sense, right? People are getting religious exemptions for all kinds of stupid bullshit around COVID. <laughs> and I want it for debt, yeah. though, because that's actually in the Bible. And... Yeah. Where where are we on that one? Where do I get a mega church pastor to write a letter to the bank saying I don't owe them anything anymore? That's what I want. I want some enterprising Christian leftist lawyer to represent me uh, in my claim against Navient specifically to say in the same way that people can get religious exemptions to not bake a cake, <laughs> to not give somebody uh, a marriage license, to uh, to not give a to not take a vaccine and so on. 
Um, just like that, I too should be able to get a religious exemption to not pay my debt to Navient because I uh, don't believe in it. My religion says it's totally made up and fake, and I want out. I feel like we did just write the uh, the script here to God's Not Dead Five, and this is what's going to happen. The whole series <laughs> is going to take a bizarre turn, and they're not going to talk about critical race theory anymore. They're not going to talk about uh, evolution or whatever. It's going to be about <laughs> us in court trying to get a student debt and. I feel like we have a good case. Um, God's not dead. He's surely alive, and he's going to bail me out of this one. Yeah. Uh, there you have it, folks. Um, if you want to support our podcast and help us get out of our various debts, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you can do that at patreon.com slash the Magnificast. And uh, if you do... You can get access to a Discord where we talk about these and many other things, and um, it's a good time. Uh, there's lots of good conversations going on over there. You can email us at themagnificast.gmail.com. Do we owe you a response? We do. Maybe, but Probably. Will we pay you that response? Someday. Also, maybe. Okay. Stay tuned. <laughs> um yep uh, our music is by Amaria Armstrong and our outro is by the illogical spoon and we'll see you all next week I don't want to get up for church in the morning church in the morning souls alive heaven come to earth and there won't be no church we'll meet down by the riverside there we'll swim with all creation Never get tired, never bored Don't worry, someday There'll be no damn between us and our Lord Jackson, keep your hoods up you Keep your hoods up And you stay up late Jackson, keep your hoods up well, you keep your hoods up and you stay up late. Oh, don't mind a cold night, but we might mind if you leave too soon. So come on now, it's still early. At least I would have.